Hello, everyone. Lee Arnold here with our weekly podcast of Country Music Conversations. Today, we'll be talking to Ricky Van Shelton. But before we start this conversation, here are a few words from our sponsor. Country Music Conversations with Lee Arnold's podcast is made possible by our sponsor, MarketSmith, Inc., the digital media agency that's been growing brands like Toomey, Shark Ninja, New Jersey Lottery, PSE&G, Blue Mercury Cosmetics, and Dick Sporting Goods. You know what makes this agency so good at what they do? Because simply being a marketing agency is no longer enough. Solution-based, problem-solving, and ever-evolving, they create enduring value for DTC and B2B brands by opening up and growing marketing channels. Their patented AI offerings, informed by human intelligence, allow them to act with agility and intellect. I was speaking with the CEO not too long ago, and she was saying they take on clients who know who they are, who want to grow, and clients that know what they want. These big brands choose MarketSmith because they want to merge with a partner who'll make them exceptional and an agency that will grow their revenue. Digital marketing is not easy, but MarketSmith Inc. knows when to make the media dollars work hard for their clients. You have a brand you want to grow? Well, contact MarketSmith.com and tell them Lee Arnold sent you. Your initial reaction might be, whatever happened to Ricky Van Shelton? Well, he was one of the most important names in neo-traditional country music with a career that began in the mid-1980s and ended around 2006, when suddenly he quit the business and retired to Virginia and basically has not been heard from since. His explanation at the time was that he wanted to spend more time with his family, but that's only part of the story. During his career, he had more than 20 singles on the Hot Country Singles Chart, and that figure included 10 number one hits. He released nine studio albums, of which his first four went platinum. Ricky was raised in Grit, Virginia. His father sang gospel music, and Ricky followed in his footsteps. As a teenager, he discovered country music and started singing in his brother's band. After he graduated high school, he worked the local clubs. His girlfriend at the time, who later became his wife, found a job in Nashville, and Ricky went with her. Once there, he worked some local clubs and made the rounds of the record labels trying to get a record deal. In 1986, Jerry Thompson, a newspaper columnist, heard one of his demos and arranged an audition with Columbia Records. He was signed to the label, and Jerry became his manager. He teamed up with producer Steve Buckingham, who realized Ricky's potential and found material that would make him a star. His first single and album, Wild Eye Dream, was very successful. His next album, Loving Proof, reached number one on the Billboard country charts. The follow-up album, RVS3, also had a number one hit single, I've Cried My Last Cheer For You. Two other singles from that collection reached the number two slot including Statue of a Fool, and I Meant Every Word He Said. In 1990, 
Ricky recorded a Christmas album, and around the same time, he wrote a series of children's books. In 1991, he teamed up with Dolly Parton for another number one hit duet called Rockin' Years. By 1992, his popularity began to wane because of the changes in country music. At that same time, Ricky admitted to having problems with alcohol, and he sought treatment to recover his sobriety. In 1993, he had his last top 40 hit with Where Was I, and shortly thereafter left Columbia Records. Fast forward to 1997, when he formed his own label, RVS Records, and released the album Making Plans in conjunction with Walmart stores. In 2000, Ricky signed with the Audium label with an album called Green Fried Tomatoes. It failed to make any noise on the charts. And in 2006, Ricky announced he was retiring and, as I mentioned before, has not been seen or heard from since. I always believed he was an incredible talent, great voice, good looks, and a winning personality. It was all validated in his success and legions of fans who probably miss him to this day. The conversation we'll be listening to took place at one of Willie Nelson's Farm Aid concerts in Indianapolis in 1990. Here now is Ricky Van Shelton. We are on the bus with Ricky Van Shelton at Farm Aid 4. Ricky just arrived from Nashville. with this is something here. I've never seen this in the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis, Ricky. Uh, almost 60 to 80 buses all together. This, this has got to be some kind of a record for entertainers. I tell you what, it's a mess here. It's a lot of people, a lot of buses, a lot of people, a lot, lots of entertainers. It's yeah. exciting. Yeah. I'm proud to be part of it. Yeah. I know you were. You said you were anxious to be part of Farm Aid, and you, even if you had had a date, you would have canceled it just to be part of this event because you feel so very strongly about the cause. Exactly. I do. I meant what I said. I'd, I'd, I'd give up a whole week of work for it because uh, the farmers need that help. You know, uh, the government helped out Christ. So why don't they help out farmers? You know, these people are feeding us. Right. You can't eat them automobiles. We got to have something to eat, you know, and, and uh, it's it's a shame what what they let happen to all these farmers. That it's just a, it's a it's a real shame. I don't know how to explain it. You know, I can't get my feelings out. It disgusts me that the government would let let this happen to these people. It really is, and when what really was was devastating to me was when I heard the figures. It really doesn't hit home until, I suppose, if you have someone that you know in farming, like. You yourself back in Grit, Virginia, I'm, a lot of people you probably know are in farming in that area. And when you hear the 2,000 farms are being lost every single week, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a staggering figure. It is. It's a staggering figure. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen when all these farms are gone and, and they turn into collective farmers? Big business owns them. They need unions to get in. And then a loaf of bread will cost you $50 a loaf, you know. What are you going to do then? You go to Burger King and get you a hamburger. It's going to cost you 15 bucks for a hamburger, you know. You know, we got to do something. Well, I'm glad that people like yourself and, and Willie, who organized this from four or five years ago, are, are seeking a solution. I think with the help of everybody and maybe changing some minds of the legislators and our politicians, we'll, we'll drive that message home. I hope you can do it better than I can do it, Lee. I ain't, I ain't real good. It makes me mad where I can't, I can't get my point across. It's just that the farmers need so much help, and it's a shame what's happening to them. And 
I, I'm willing to do anything I can, and I'm very proud of this, that, that I can be here. And I'm proud of all these entertainers and, and all the people that's involved. It's so many people that we, there's no way we can name them that donated their time and money and effort, uh, food, just their services in, in any, any form imaginable that they've offered these things to help this, this thing get off the ground, you know. RVS3, your new album, is, is right there at the top of the charts and can't be budged by anybody <laughs> or anyone at this point. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear that, Lee. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. But uh, you know how this works. Yeah, It's a better day and gone tomorrow. <laughs> but I'll tell you, your, your record and track record has been so consistent with the three albums you've put out. And this one has to be another milestone in Ricky Van Chilton's career. It is. Uh, it went gold in four weeks, thanks to all the fans and all the radio stations and people like yourself that's spreading the good word. Uh, but it's um, it's about 700000 now, and it's been out uh, uh, about three months. So we think it's going to go platinum before the end of the year. So this will be my third platinum album out of three, three out of three in bad, you know. And that's, I'm real proud of it, you know. Uh, it's it's like anything, anybody. It's like a big pat on the back, you know. It's you're like, doing good. Yeah, that's what everybody wants to hear. That no matter what you do, no matter what line of work you're in, sure. you want to, you know, you want to feel like at the end of the week that you've done good. And and uh, in this business, it don't happen to everybody. It happens to, to just a very few people that, that get a gold album or a platinum album. And uh, so it's it's a wonderful thing. Your current single doing very well. I've cried my last tear over you. Yeah, it's a it's a western swing. Yeah, and uh, it's it's doing real good, as a matter of yeah. fact. That that's kind of a thing. I, I never figured you to do a western swing song. I know you, you do the honky tonk ballads, the up tempo stuff, a little bit of the the old traditional. But when it came to western swing, that was an area that you kind of never delved into, right, Reggie? Or have you done that on stage a lot? Well, I always do just a few. I do one or two every show. I do at least one western swing. But uh, no, it's not something that I dabble in a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But we found this song, it's a brand new song uh, last year, year before last. Actually, I found the song. We held on to it a year before we cut it. And uh, it just came out good. You know, everything that you carry to the studio don't really come out. You know, some things just don't. After you get everything down, it, it, it doesn't always work or sound like, like you thought it was. Or something's missing, whatever it might be. But this one worked. And so uh, CBS liked it and radio stations liked it. And they actually chose the single. I didn't choose it as a single. Uh, I had another song in choice, but uh, the radio people wanted it, so we got it for them. Your previous hit, Statue of a Fool, another number one song for you, and uh, uh, the the initial debut cut from the album RVS3, a song that Jack Green had a lot to, to do with making a big hit way back when in 1967. I should remember because I wrote the liner notes for the album. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, six to seven's close enough. You know? Statue of a fool. Statue of a fool. Yeah, great song. I mean, the message in it. I mean, that that would be if you said, "I want to write the perfect country ballad." If you were a songwriter, I think you couldn't do better than Statue. That's true. It is, Statue of a fool is a real classic. It's a it's a true classic song, and the people love it. I mean, they love Jack Green's versions of it, and and the many other people that's done the song. I guess it's been done by a hundred different people. You were pretty true to Jack's original rendition, but only, you know, kind of injecting Ricky Van Shelton's little brand of, 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 uh, of, of country yeah. balladeering. Uh, what was Jack's reaction? He loved it. He loved it. Uh, you know, uh, as me being a new member of the Opry, I, uh, I said I wasn't going to do it in, in the night that Jack was there at the Opry because that's his song, you know. And he's been doing it for 20 years. So I said I wasn't going to do it if he was there. But one night I was there and he was there. And Michael came up to me and said, uh, Ricky, Jack wants you to do uh, Statue of a Fool. And I said, you sure? Because <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to take it away from him. Uh, not that I could do it better or anything like that. It was just it was a matter of principle. I just It was his song. But he wanted to hear me do it, so I did it, you know. 
So his reaction to the song was was, was good. You know, he he's pleased. I'm pleased. <laughs> Someday some young kid may come up to you at the Opry who's a new star and say, Ricky, I'd like to do Somebody Lied. Do you mind? <laughs> oh, that was, that was, I think that would be really flattering, wouldn't it? It, would, it really would, yeah. Because it is. It really, I guess, you know, that is the most sincere form of flattery. Not imitation, but doing someone's original work and, you know, and doing it well. And you asked me something else, too, a while ago about, uh, like, taking my own style and injecting uh, into a... Uh, I didn't change from Jack's version right. of, of Statue of a Fool. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, anything that I... Any old song I do, I don't change it. If I like the song the way it is, I'm not going to change it. I'm just going to sing it. And I'm a different entity. I'm a different person. i got a different voice. And the song comes out as mine, but I don't change it, you know. There might be some time I might grab an old song that, that I just, that I change the tempo, change the beat or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, which would, would totally change the way you sang it then. But, but I try to stay true to them if I like the way they're done, you know. When I think of your new album, RVS3, there's another song that just comes to mind, just hit me right at the top of my head. You do a wonderful version of Pretty Woman, the Roy Orbison classic. Yeah, pretty woman. I love it. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna do that today. Are you really? On the uh, on the farm aid, yeah. Yeah. The reaction from the crowd is great when you do that because there's something so familiar about that song. I mean, you talk about standards. I mean, not only a country standard, a pop standard, an everything standard. Yeah, that's a standard and, and I found out that uh I, I close my show with that all the time because people go berserk over the song and I don't care whether they are diehard country fans or contemporary country fans or southern rock fans or rock and roll fans, I found that everybody in every field pretty much loves that song. And so I started closing the show with it, and the people just go bananas. And that's the reason that I put it on the album, because I knew it would never be a single. Uh, but I put it on the album for the people who love that song. And, and it's it kind of a gesture to Roy, because he was a real hero of mine. I'll bet he was. Yeah, everybody's. Angry. Yeah. Okay, how about you do the same for me? What, is there a story behind that one? Uh, well, Mike Reed that writes for Welk or Polygram now. And, and I think CBS just signed him up. Uh, he wrote that song. Mm. And the other one uh, that's being considered for the next single is I'm Starting Over, and that's my choice. Yeah. Uh, that was written by John Wesley Riles. Right. Of a, cave fame. Yeah, of <laughs> cave fame. And he and some, some other guy wrote I can't think of the other guy's name. And the other guy, I'm real sorry. <laughs> but I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. But, but anyhow, that's my, my choice is I'm Starting Over. You took a world with a Charlie Rich classic called Life's Little Ups and Downs, which is kind of a forgotten Charlie Rich classic. When you think of Charlie Rich, you think of My Elusive Dreams, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, and uh, Behind Closed Doors. But who would pick up Life's Little Up and Down? Great song. Well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lee, wasn't that his last single? And it didn't didn't do very good. It just made it like top 50 or something like that. So it wasn't a real big song, but it's a great song. And, and Charlie Rich's wife, Margaret Ann, wrote the song for Charlie. And she sent me a real nice letter uh, telling me that she'd heard it that morning and she, and she sent it, uh, Western Union, you made my day. <laughs> and uh, that, that's being considered for a single, too. Not by me or, or CBS so much, but by the radio people. It's being played so much that it's almost getting ready to enter the charts by itself. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to keep him from not playing it. You know, it's a real, it's a real uh, tough, battle. tough battle out there in radio world, you know. <laughs> they like so much your music, they're playing it all. Oh, that's good, I guess. <laughs> I guess it is. I guess you're, you're pretty happy these days. Life is good. Do you have a chance to be back home with Betty uh, off the road as much time as you'd like? No, I don't have a lot of time, Lee, to get, to get home, you know. I just I have to work too much. Everybody Does that bother you? No, it did at first, you know, but now I, I didn't get to where I really like staying out. I, I, I love what I do. Mm. And I, I'm happy. I, I'll, be, I'll be home a day and I'll be bored. You're like Willie Nelson. 
Well, not and most entertainers. Like most entertainers, it gets in your blood, and this is a real life. And and after you get adjusted to it, then it's hard to get adjusted to anything else, you know. Right. And it's not a lot of parties and fun and games like people think, you know. It might be in rock and roll world with young kids, but mm-hmm. we're not young kids, and we're grown adults, and and we work hard, and uh, we don't tour, we work. It ain't it ain't a lot of partying going on. It's a lot of work, a lot of a lot of emotional hours spent thinking and talking, interviewing, uh, just working. You know, it's it's, it's a real job. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tough work. It, you know, all is not as glamorous as the fans might think. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess one thing. Who was it? Mike Robinson. Fans will do everything in the world except leave you alone. That's true. That you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. I do believe that. They <laughs> love you. Country music fans love you so much. They think they own you. They think they own you, and I don't mean that in in, in a bad way. Anybody, it's just it's, it's a fact that you, if you look around, you watch a show, you watch some of the people clamoring over the entertainers, you know, and they'll get mad at them, you know, and, and we do the best we can. Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think an entertainer's role should be, or what they owe the not really owe the public, but are indebted to the public for, aside from buying their records? Well, that's a real hard question. Uh, you know. Where I mean, do you draw the line? Yeah, where do you draw the line? And, and how, how do you draw the line where it won't offend the fans because you don't want to offend them because if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't be here. Me nor you. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't be interviewing me if it wasn't for the fans either, you know. Right. There's so many people that's, that's involved in this thing, but where do you draw the line? I don't know. Um, that's a hard thing. It's, it's really hard dealing with so many people because you can't please everybody and you try your darndest to please everybody. And like I said, some of the fans will get mad at you. Uh, if you can't sign autograph or something, and, and I never turned down, I never have turned down an autograph, never will. But there are times I can't do it, you know. And especially now these days that uh, there's so many people at the shows, I can't because I can't get to the next show, and I'm under contract to do so, and that's hard because I know a lot of them get mad at me, but it's nothing I can do about it. When you were first starting out playing those clubs back in Virginia, it was easy to. After the first set, second set, third set, stay and sign 100, 200 autographs and well, take as many pictures you want. Yeah, well, actually, see, I, 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 I was signing autographs up until last year, uh-huh. up until this year. Yeah. But when the crowd started getting three and four and 5,000 people, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it because I couldn't make it through all the autographs and get to the next show on time. Because we have, we have load-ins early in the morning, and we drive 500 miles a night. And like I said, I'm under contract, and if I'm five, I can't be five minutes late. Right. You know, right. it's uh, so... I signed as long as I could sign, you know. You've had many concerts out there, and as you say, appearing before 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people now in concerts. And I guess night after night, each concert and each city really is different for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a brand new night. I mean, it's the same it's the same stuff, you know, but still it's a, it's a different night and different people there. Every night, Every night's new, you know. I try to make it make every night new. Are there any outstanding moments in those concerts that stand out more than others, one particular concert that you said, oh, boy, did we nail it tonight. Look at that crowd. Look what they're doing to me off stage. Yeah, I was in Fresno, California about a month ago with uh, with Randy Travis, and we had sold the place out. I mean, and the crowd was there. They were there for us, and uh, it was a wonderful night. The sound was wonderful. The crowd was wonderful. We played good. Uh, I, don't, I don't even think I forgot a word, you know. <laughs> But it was just a good night. Everything I said, I was relating to the people. They were relating to me. The music, it was just a good night, you know. And I thought to myself, when I got off the stage, I was so happy. And I give it everything I had. My band gave everything they had. And the crowd give it right back. And I thought, as I went to the bus, I said, 
this must be the closest thing to heaven on earth right here when, when, it's, when the nights are good. But on the other hand, too, Lee, let me tell you what, when you get in front of 12,000 people and you have a bad night, it ain't nothing no bad. And to be standing up in front of 12,000 people and have, have all this bad stuff happen to you and you can't hear, and it makes you feel very humble and makes you feel like just it's a real experience. <laughs> so you can go from one extreme to the other. Have the female fans, because you, along with Randy, uh, as you mentioned, and a person like Dwight Yoakam and now Garter, are kind of looked up to, and Rodney Crowell is, is kind of sex symbols in country music. And and the women, particularly the women, uh, feel very close to the male artist, identify closely with them, whether it's their boyfriend or they think of you as like their husband. Uh, there, there's a certain kind of reverence and respect they have for you. And and then, by the same token, uh, they can kind of throw you off on stage by, you know, with the flashbulbs or throwing up a, a bunch of roses or trying to get an autograph or trying to jump up on stage or, or throw some apparel. Have they ever tried to throw some underwear? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, that show that we did in uh, Fresno I was telling you about, uh, this girl threw a pair of underwear and it landed on my shoulder while I was singing a ballad. And it just it was a pair of bikini underwear hanging on my shoulder. Pink, there were pink britches, pink underwear hanging on my blue coat. And I was trying real nonchalantly to, you know, to shrug them off my shoulder. And they had cameras, see, because Randy and Travis, they carried the big video screens. And they had the cameras right on it. And the crowd was laughing. And I was trying to be real cool and get it off my shoulder. So, yeah, they can distract you. Yeah, believe me. But, you know, um, that all that excitement goes along with, with the music business. Uh, um, it's, you know, because when you're singing, you, you're, you're being romantic because ballads, you know, love songs are romantic. And there's a lot, so much emotion in music anyway of all sorts of all types of emotions. Mm-hmm. So you go, all the excitement and, and all this hysteria goes along with it, you know. How important have videos been for your career? Well, that's a good question. I think they're very important. Uh, I don't spend a lot of money on videos because it's not how much money you spend. It's, it's, it's just the way the thing is made. I hadn't spent a lot of money at all. I've probably done five of the cheapest videos on, that have been hits on, on, on TV. But they are important. They're not as important to, to uh, country as they are to rock and roll because there's so many kids. Although the country music right now is, is, uh, is bulging at the seams, you know, with, with young people. Uh, we're bringing in young people everywhere. Country music is growing like crazy. You must be happy with the state of the business right now because uh, I can recall 20 years ago, not like it is today as far as the youth is concerned. Exactly. It's changed in the last five years. As a matter of fact, in the last two years, I believe, I, I mean, to go to now, there's little, little bitty kids there, you know. All these little early teenagers, 13-year-olds, they're everywhere. Half of the, half of the building will be full of, of people like that. You know, it's uh, just young people. That's wonderful. Especially those little kids singing along with my bucket's got a hole in it. Yeah, and crying and giving you roses. You know, it's, it's unreal. Um, it's wonderful. Well, Ricky, I'll tell you, you've, you've done such a wonderful job of, of improving the image of country music and keeping the legacy alive with, with your great artistry and, and, and your personality and, and your perseverance, really. Because I'll tell you, there must have been times in your career before you got to Nashville or even when you were there that your dream is, I hope the dream happens, but not realizing that it would happen or happen as big as it has. Do, do you have to pinch yourself sometimes? Well, sometimes I do uh, stop and think. I usually stay so busy that I don't have time to think. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I, I, I do have to, you know, say, thank you, God. I just stop and say, thank you. Thank you for the voice, you know, because it's, it's, been, it's been real good. And uh, I've tried hard. I've never been discouraged in my music. I've been discouraged with life like everybody in jobs and not money, you know, and a uh, car broke down, no gas or whatever it might be. I've been through all that stuff. I've been broke all my life. 
but um, I've never been discouraged with my music because I've had faith in myself all my life. And if it ends tomorrow, you know, if I can't get another date, I'm not going to go crying on by the shoulder because I've had a good time and I'll be playing at Ronnie Phillips' house come Friday night. <laughs> we'll look for you. Thank you very much, Rick. I appreciate you having me with us. It's always great to be with you. Thank you, Lee, very much. And Ronnie Phillips is a good guitar player, a good friend of mine, and we always play together. So that's who I'm talking about. Yeah. Ronnie, if it ends, I'll see you Friday, buddy. <laughs> and there's our visit with RVS, Ricky Van Shelton. Next week on Country Music Conversations, we'll be talking to the Bellamy Brothers, Howard and David. Until then, Lee Arnold reminding you to stay safe and keep it country. <laughs>